Loma for the FinTech Impact. I'm your host, Jason Pereira. Today's show, we have the final episode of our five-part series on open banking. And today is really just, we'll call it the after show. It's uh, kind of going over fundamental concepts again with only one person as opposed to three people so that you can just kind of wrap your head around the core issues. And to talk about this, I invited my friend and previous guest, Clayton Fike, onto the podcast today. Clayton was previously on the podcast way back when he was with a company called Quandle. He's since moved on to a company called Flinks, uh, who has also been a guest of the podcast. Uh, Flinks is a data aggregation and management company, and I brought him on to kind of have just a debrief of the entire scenario. And with that, here's my conversation with Clayton about open banking. Good morning, Clayton. Good morning, Jason. Thanks for taking the time today. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on again. Oh, my pleasure. So uh, this is a bit of a different one for uh, than most. Basically, this is kind of the uh, after show of the already four-part series we've had on open banking over the last couple of weeks um, and just kind of to digest what was learned and recap what was learned and, and talk to another company that's basically uh, in the space and specifically, you know, crossing from Canada into the U.S. And for those of you who've listened to podcasts for a while, you might recognize Clayton. Clayton's been on before, although that last time there was a different company, uh, Quandel. Uh, you had your exit there and decided to move on to the next potential exit. So good on you. So, uh, <laughs> so tell us about your current role right now. What are you doing over at Flinks? And we've had, of course, we've had Flinks has been a guest as well. Yeah, no, thanks. Uh, thanks a lot, Jason. It's it's great to be back. Like I mentioned, yeah, previously when I was with Quandle, you know, it was working quite heavily with data and capital markets. And and now uh, I've been fortunate to join Flinks and work with data within kind of the broader financial services industry and watch, uh, watch those changes take place. So I'm the chief revenue officer for Flinks and uh, we're on a mission to help companies in financial services use data to their advantage. So we like to say that we're helping to build the financial data layer of the internet. And we can we can get into what what some of that means, but open banking is uh, is certainly changing the financial services industry. We're gonna jump into that in a second, but I mean, it's interesting. And I think a lot of open banking has to do with a bigger trend altogether and a bigger issue altogether in technology. And it's so much of what technologists or people envision wanting to do with technology. The biggest limitation is not so much the coding or the access to people. It's almost universally the access to quality data. Like it's like, it would be awesome if I could do X, Y, or Z. Okay. That's fine. You can build the thing that does X, Y, or Z pretty quickly. The problem is how are you going to fill all that information in? And, and more often than not, it sits somewhere, but it sits somewhere in a silo and it's been like neglected or abused and isn't of great quality. And really that's kind of the core of everything we're getting at is, is kind of unlocking the next level of like massive global innovation by cleaning up this mess, right? Like pretty much, right? Absolutely. I mean, the industry just wants good, clean, uh, reliable data that they can work with to power new use cases and drive innovation. And uh, going back to the last podcast we had together when I was at Quandle, that's that's what hedge funds were doing, right? They were taking data and using it to drive decision-making for investments. And obviously there's a lot of money on the line when they do that. Now, banks, fintech firms, any sort of player within financial services is trying to use data to drive better decisions around their customer, around building new products and services, around uh, protecting themselves from uh, the competition. So it's it's really leveraging data in a way that can benefit them. That now with the advent of, of open banking, this data has just now become available. So let's let's go back and define open banking. I'll let you take the first crack at it. In your mind, you know, how do you summarize what, what someone to a layperson what open banking is? Sure. It's basically, in our view, 
a new environment in financial services where individuals can share any information about their financial lives with anyone else, obviously with their consent. And what we do at Flinks is we're, we're the pipes to allow that, to, that information to flow. So that is open banking. It's the ability for an individual to share their financial data for the purposes of deriving more benefit for themselves. You know, it's to the layperson, this seems like, well, I already have access to my stuff online and, you know, I can get statements and whatever else. But what we're really talking about is giving is access to your digital information, everything you produce for whatever institution you're working with in a way that is modern and easily accessible without having to jump through hoops or create workarounds, but directly being able to reach into that system, touch that data point and extract it and direct it wherever it is you want to go. And there's some people, maybe they don't get why this is important in so many ways, because you know we talked about a number of use cases in the previous podcast, but even something as simple as I want to update my accounting records, right? Like a lot of systems do that now. They, they extract data from bank accounts in order to basically put it all in one place. The problem is, is that more often than not, you can speak to this that's using something called screen scraping as opposed to a direct connection. Can you explain what a screen scrape is? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, that's just really the way of accessing the data. There are numerous different ways in which you can access the data, and, and that's one of them. And as the industry becomes more and more advanced, there's sort of direct, more sophisticated ways of moving the data. Um, screen scraping was, was, is kind of an early, early attempt at bridging these really silos of data that exist within different institutions. And to your point, you know, your guest previously talked about a lot of interesting use cases and innovation, and it's fantastic to think about where the financial services industry can go now that this data is being made available. But really, from an average person's perspective, the real advantage is you mentioned paper statements and, and kind of the, the way we do things today is not easy. There's a lot of efficiency and simplicity that can be derived from having good, clean, reliable data that you can use to simply power a use case. For the average person, there's really a lot of value in moving good, clean, reliable data from one place to another to eliminate some of the some of those uh, paper processes. Yeah, I mean, and you think about like just even simple use cases, right? Like you're a consumer. And let's say you're trying to get a grip on your financial situation. It's actually, if you wanted to know how much you spent on groceries last year or how much you spent on anything in the last year, unless you signed up for the equivalent of mint.com or a data aggregation tool, that is actually a question that requires a substantial amount of work to figure out. You're trying to figure out how to save money, cut back on expenses, basically figure out where your money's all going. And it actually is a substantial amount of work, which is a barrier to entry or barrier to betterment of yourself. And really, we have access to data. Like we have access. And the problem is that it's just in such a, as I keep saying on this podcast, it's like, yeah, we have access to it, but it, it, right now it's the equivalent of having to crawl over glass to get to it. That's just not functional and it's not scalable, especially if we want to build bigger, more robust and innovative new technologies. Yeah, I like that analogy. And in fact, uh, some people in the, in the industry would prefer to have it that way for sure. But I think it's inevitable that the glass gets swept away so to speak, and um, it becomes easier and easier to, to access the data because it really will, and it already is, opening up a number of use cases that individuals haven't even, or fintech firms, traditional banks haven't even thought of yet. And ultimately, I think we all want to go to a world where it's, uh, it's much easier to conduct our financial lives 
and bank sort of in a one-click type fashion, as opposed to the way that things are, are being done today. I mean, we're already starting to see some of the use cases or businesses that now exist that didn't before because of these access to this technology or this data, even though it's still kind of a broken experience. So the examples I'll give are previous guests of the show, for example, Lending Loop, a peer-to-peer -peer lending company similar to Lending Circle in the U.S., and if it wasn't for the fact that they could access all your bank, you know, could with a couple of clicks, access your bank account records for your business and see all the inflows and outflows of the money to reconcile what's happening in your accounting software, then the reality is, is that they wouldn't be able to underwrite. They wouldn't, they, you know, the amount of time or effort it would take to model the risk of any customer would be substantially greater than what it is now. So that would increase the cost of it. Or, or the likes of, of ClearBank, who basically will give you vendor financing towards expanding your online business because they can, they can, you know, they know it takes so long for Amazon to pay you or whatever, or, or Shopify to pay you. And you've already sold that. But instead of waiting six weeks to get your money, hey, you've already got that coming. Here's 90% of it. And yeah, you can finance your, you know, think about even businesses online that have benefited from this, from even the, just the early stage of this, right? We haven't even gotten to the possibilities of what's possible for the consumer. Exactly. It's spawning not only new use cases, but new companies. And based on some of the comments from your previous guests too, you know, it's, it's like the banks need to, uh, need to get on board here. And, and definitely some of them have, <laughs> uh, but they need to think about where, in what you know, country the future of their business about? is going in this. <laughs> well, I think all of them to a certain extent are at least thinking about how they might be able to play in this in this new world. And we're even seeing that in Canada, certainly in the US, in the EU, it's it's been regulated that they think about it. So many banks, traditional banks are thinking about kind of these new companies or new use cases. How can they compete with them or offer similar types of services? And at the heart of it, again, data is driving all of that. Yeah, uh, data they don't want to release because they don't want competition. And then therefore, they will launch a secondary offering that is half the uh, half as good or a third as good. It costs more money. Anyway, let's let's keep going. I still have some friends at the major banks, believe it or not, not, not for long, not the way things are going. So <laughs> so, so with that, uh, I mean, it's interesting because one of the concepts we talked about uh, frequently was, um, you know, the paper on, on the the Copernican revolution in banking and banking as a platform. I really wish that there was a bank in Canada that had the chutzpah uh, to basically realize that maybe the smart thing is not just being the full stack provider for ourselves, but maybe if we opened up a platform for everybody else, we could really, really make a dent because, hey, instead of us just marketing to Canadian consumers, hundreds of small businesses that are going to be built off our platform, marketing to Canadians in ways that we can't even think of yet, that's a market we want a piece of, right? Like none of them seem to have the audacity. And don't get me wrong, the incentives in, in banking and, and banking management are not there to drive that, but none of them have shown that vision or foresight. Yeah, I mean, I think one of your guests talked about the data network that's being built where there are suppliers of data and consumers of data. The consumers of data are the fintech firms, developers, neobanks, anyone who's using the data to drive a new use case. And the suppliers of data really are the banks. I think the banks have kind of struggled to understand exactly where they fit in in this, this new world, this network. And to your point, I think the natural sort of evolution that banks will come to realize, and again, some have, some very traditional banks have already embarked on a very aggressive uh, trajectory down this path, and that is that they will become a platform or, or almost a utility and provide value-add services where they can. And um, in other areas where, where they don't want to, they're happy to share their customers to derive some sort of benefit out of doing that. 
So yeah, Jason, exactly to your point, I think the the innovative banks will start to see themselves more and more as a platform and start to think about their customer base and the services they provide in that way in order to be competitive in kind of this new environment. I do wonder, though, if it's going to take almost a full cycle of management turnover before that really gets there. I mean, you have a number of people who institutionally have been bred to basically think in terms of barriers, right, not reduction of barriers. And just in conversations from roundtables I've been in, I sometimes want to bang my head against the wall that they can't see this. You're nodding your head. I'll let you, I'll let you chime in. <laughs> well, I agree. But at the same time, I think the pace of change is accelerating. What we've even seen over the past 12 months has forced everyone to think differently. And uh, I feel like banks who aren't starting to think more about this type of innovation in a couple of years are going to have a really tough time. So it's almost like a do or die situation in, in some areas of the market. And um, with the, the advent of some of the things that the big tech firms are doing and uh, just innovation in general, I think it's forced a lot of them to rethink their business models to a certain extent. And uh, uh, yeah, to your point, they, they need to bring those types of people into the bank. And I think they are in order to survive. You should talk about how happy they are once, they're, uh, once they've been there for six months. Trust me, I've had that conversation. Yeah. Again, it's a cultural issue. But yeah, yeah, I mean, I've said it before and I'll keep saying it. Like there is a tremendous first mover advantage for the, the one who gets there first. I think the issue is, is that it's this kind of game of Mexico. It's a Mexican standoff where they're all staring at each other and maybe they're all slowly moving towards the door. And no one wants to, if anyone, if anyone makes a break for it, they're all going to make a break for it. Right. And it's, you know, cause no one wants to give up that land, but no one wants to be the first through it. So it's, uh, it's <laughs> welcome to the first incentives of conservatism and banking. So you forget that let's, let's go back to um, let's, let's get talk about the, what we're seeing, what was said by the, by the people on the panels. Was there anything that, that came up that you thought was particularly interesting or fascinating that you weren't fully aware of, or that you thought was particularly uh, of note? Well, it was just really interesting to see the differences in where sort of different parts of the world are with respect to regulation. So having guests from each area on, it really sort of exposes those differences in a stark way. You think of Europe, for example, and they've been forced to embark because of the regulations that have been brought forward, embark on kind of this new environment of, of open banking and, and banks have been forced to, to create APIs and, and share their data in a certain way. And that's worked in some areas and, and in others it hasn't. And I think it's really hard to legislate uh, innovation. I don't think that's, uh, that's possible. Um, then you look at, uh, you know, the U.S. where I think Canada is pretty similar in this, in this respect too. Um, it's really been a market-driven approach. So innovation is not arisen from from legislation it's it's arisen from startups and, and innovators that uh, are trying to do things differently with with tech that's available today again started with screen scraping and and now it's it's changing into into other ways of, of doing things there's uh, you know, analytics on top and and the use cases for data are becoming more and more sophisticated and that's all driven from sort of market-led or customer uh, led uh, innovation. I'll go back to culture being a differentiator there. I mean, the Americans do not need do not need any help from regulation to help them be innovative. They do not, right? Like it's get the heck out of their way. They're going to do it. If anything, the regulation needs to make sure that things don't go too far. Whereas Europe, you know, in the very conservative nature that that they have, I think they do need to be pushed beyond what is what is market what is market driven simply because it's just a very different culture. I think we sitting kind of, as we typically look at ourselves, halfway between both continents to some degree, even though we're on one. We unfortunately need a little bit of both, although it's not 
helped by the oligopoly, but that's a different story altogether. But yeah, I think it, it's uh, so I, I, I don't discredit. I think it's, it's a great example for the rest of the world to take lessons from both. Right. Like you have the innovators of regulation and the innovators of, of actual market force dynamics, you know, competing out to basically lead the charge. And we get to sit back and, and cherry pick if we're smart about it. Yeah, exactly. It's all kind of coming together, kind of being driven out of out of the U.S. and, and Europe. And of course, there are things going on in you know the Middle East and and Asia and and even Africa. There's some interest, interesting new uh, data aggregators. But I think it's really being driven out of uh, North America and Europe. And there are a lot of innovative firms in in Europe. And there, are, I think, the fact that regulation is going to come in in Canada and the U.S. is is actually going to uh, mature the industry in the right way too. So you're right. We're sort of just cherry picking and it's it's all going to come together into this kind of environment where this sharing of data really becomes second nature. I mean, to me, regulation is primarily, at least in the, in the context that we talked about, its most useful function to me is preventing bad actors from the standpoint of, for those of you who are listening, you might hear that my kindergartner is taking home kindergarten classes right now because of COVID. So if you hear if you hear a child singing happy birthday, that's what's going on. Anyway, back to back to my point. It's the bad actor issue, right? So there's all kinds of stories out of Europe where, you know, whether it be PSD2 or whatever other legislation required companies to divulge information, it didn't say how exactly. And some of these companies very bitterly cough at the cop this up. And there's a really funny story I had in a previous podcast about how it was one um, one institution had to had to basically report all their trading activity or something like that across the entire institution. So they basically went through the trouble of loading it all into a text file and parse data. So it's like, oh, you want all our data here? Here it is in the most useless format possible. Congratulations, you have it, right? And it's just the bitterness of that. Like, and that's that's by design, I think. And the reality is, is that if you don't set minimum standards for a what is accessible and b how it's accessible, you're going to have Let's put it this way. We're all serviced by the fact there's only a couple of protocols for transmission of data, right? We're, we're all serviced by the fact that TCP IP is how the internet works. If we had seven different competing protocols and had to open different browsers for each of them, this would not go well, right? So when it comes to quote unquote utility level dynamics, I think maybe the market could solve it. Regulation has a role to play in this. Yeah, well, that's that's exactly what happens when you you force somebody to do something, they're, they're definitely not going to do it for you in the easiest way possible. So we hope yeah. that situation doesn't, doesn't happen in, in Canada. And uh, I don't think it's will, uh, it will. There's some encouraging signs there. But I think the, the other important thing not to miss on the regulatory side is this idea around consent. So again, for, for the average person or, or anyone you know, who's, who's listening to this podcast, people need to understand that this sharing of data is all underpinned by the consent of the individual. So any of these new regulations need to tie closely together with, with data privacy and consumer protection type uh, regulations or, or laws that exist in, in different countries, because this will not be the same as how data flows on the internet today, right? People capture browsing history. The large tech companies know a lot about you based on your behavior, and that's all, all generated from various data points they gather. That is not open banking. Open banking or accessing your personal financial data is always going to be based on your consent. So I think it's important for, for people to understand that, that the same way that your, your browsing activity is, is shared with the, the big tech firms is not how your data about your mortgage or your, your transaction history on your credit card is going to be shared. It, it has to be very specific and it, it, it needs to be, it needs to only move with your consent. 
And that's a, a big piece of the regulation that I think the, the regulators need to get right in order for, for people to continue to feel, uh, feel comfortable sharing data. Yeah, and that's that's part of the reason why this is a very important decision. Is we talk about all for all the innovation and all the access to data and all this other stuff. At the end of the day, what we're really talking about is a foundational principle of data rights. You know, like more than one person on the podcast said, this is just what's right. Like this is just what we should be entitled to. And anyone who wants to argue that I shouldn't have free, unfettered, and easy access in a dynamic way to something that I produce as part of my interaction in good faith with another organization, like. What is wrong with you? Like, I'm sorry to say, like, you're trying to, if that's the case, if you think there's a real problem in giving me access to that, it's because, probably because you are doing something that you don't want me to know about, or you are trying to maintain an asymmetry to the relationship that benefits you, not me, right? So at the end of the day, you know, you know, I think it was it was David Watchell who had some very, very colorful mm-hmm. words that I typically don't necessarily use on air, but I use them all the time, which one of the things was just 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 be patriotic and do what's right for your population. Like that's what a lot of this comes down to. And I, I sincerely hope that any legislator around the world who is looking at this doesn't just look at this as, you know, tech companies versus versus uh, the, the banking industry. That's not what this is about. This, this almost goes back to a foundational principle that should be entrenched within every constitution of a country, which isn't because... Digital data didn't exist when constitutions came about. The reality is, is that this is property ownership, and we need to start actually putting some laws around this because we've allowed entire massive multi-billion-dollar companies to be built off the backs of our data and gotten, in some cases, a trade-off of amusement or utility, but not a share of the profits. That's for sure. Yeah, exactly right. It's it's about data rights, and um, you know, at Flink, that's something we take really seriously, and we are in every way we can empowering our customers to be very open and honest and clear with their customers about how their data is being used. Yeah. So let me let me go back to one thing we should tackle. We didn't tackle it quite enough. I mean, I think it's because I just I feel people should understand that this is kind of a red herring. Let's go back to the big elephant in the room when it comes to anything digital and security. Talk to me about how you guys address security and how an open banking framework would address security and why it shouldn't be a primary concern. I mean, don't get me wrong, security should always be a concern to everyone involved, but to the end consumer who who should who doesn't want to have this massive burden of essentially having to worry about this. What are you doing or how does this protect their data in an effective way? Sure. So again, it's it's always consent driven. So an individual may only choose to share a specific piece of their financial data. It doesn't need to be all of their financial data. And so there's maybe some inherent security built in into that. They're sharing specific data for a specific purpose. So that's kind of maybe an answer from a philosophical perspective. From a more a technology perspective, I mentioned there are different ways to access the data. Some of it's through screen scraping. Some of it's through direct connections that firms have built with banks or banks offer themselves. They're all, I guess, various security-related um, issues that come along with with those. And, and I think for the most part, uh, because Flanks and other data companies exist in the industry, those have been mostly solved. Flanks, for example, we're, we're SOC 2 compliant. We, we take security very, very seriously. There's a lot of methods that we undertake to make sure that any data that moves is done so in a, a very, very secure way. And in many cases, uh, once it's used for that specific use case, it's it's immediately purged. So I think consumers can have a lot of confidence that when their data is moving, it's being done in a very secure way. And that obviously underpins uh, consent because 
I'm not going to consent to share my data if, if I don't think it's going to be done in a, in a secure way, or I think that it could leak somehow. So it's a very, very important component. And if anything, the proper setup of proper APIs only improves upon that compared to the current, right? Like the current, I mean, currently, you know, for a screen scrape, someone has to give you their password, which is stored securely. You guys then utilize that to log into the website and just pull that information yourselves. And that is done every time it needs to be updated, right? So there's an interaction there versus the API authenticates you one time link. And now there's a link in place. It's been, the permission is there and the bank knows that you don't have to put your password in every time. It's a much more secure way of doing things as opposed to having to save password, like your, your passwords altogether. So, I mean, frankly, it's, I always make the joke that, you know, and I had this conversation on the weekend when people are like, well, is, is this, you know, someone actually asked me the day is, is, is OneDrive secure? I'm like, first, first I make the look, I'm that look on my face. And then, and I'm like, okay, so let me ask you something. Is your password randomized in 20 characters? Answer is no. Okay. So you're the weakest link. Right. Like that's the reality of it. You know, it isn't, it isn't the tech companies who are, who are usually the insecure ones. I mean, someone, especially when a company that's so that's focused on data, you guys, you guys have to be like Fort Knox with everything quite honestly, otherwise, you know, one breach in your business model disappears. Right. So frankly, it's from the security standpoint, like I said, it's a red herring. You guys, like you said, you're you got SOC compliance and, and you're getting, I'm guessing you're probably getting audited at least every three months, if not more frequently. Right. Like how often the security audits. Exactly. That's uh, it's, you know, if you think of us as kind of the pipelines or the infrastructure that's under underpinning the flow of all this data, when a pipeline leaks, that's a really, really serious situation. And, and the pipeline companies take the monitoring of that very seriously. They, you know, they have lots of plans in place around security there. So it's, it's not uh, dissimilar to what, what we do. It's critically important to our business. So before we wrap up, because the time's running low, I'm going to ask you um, three questions. I don't think I was asking these questions when you were last on the podcast. It was that early. Okay? So I've added three <laughs> questions at the end that I ask everybody to kind of get you to thinking and end on a positive note. The first is if you had one wish for something could change in the industry as a whole or your company, what would it be? I think if tomorrow the banks all realized that this is where the world was heading and they decided they wanted to get on board and be more innovative and be the platform you mentioned and start working with us on, on building the new world of financial services, that would be a wish of mine. I think the opportunity for them is gigantic. And uh, if again, like I said, some of them have seen it and we're having some very, very encouraging conversations and, and working on some really interesting projects with some you know, traditional banks. But if, if all of them could, could see it, boy, oh boy, would, uh, would this accelerate for, for everyone in the industry and I think be a good thing for everyone all around. So that's my one I'm wish. also going to make an assumption and kind of add to that. I'm going to say, I'm sure you're probably having those conversations, but I'm sure there's always the like two, one step forward, two steps back kind of attitude that you're seeing with a lot of people. I'm sure they're like, oh, we're open for this. Okay, great. Let's go to here. Whoa, 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 whoa. Let's, let's slow down for a bit, right? Like it's the wrapping their head around the entire thing, the entire concept and saying like, nope, we are committed. We're in. Let's make this happen. I'm sure that would be the gumdrops and rainbows version of, of reality for you. And I hope for the betterment of mankind, uh, you get there. The second, second we're on question, a positive, uh, positive path. <laughs> there we go. Second question, uh, and this one can be can get changed a little bit. What's been the biggest challenge in getting the company to where it is today? So you've been on board for how long now? A couple of years? Uh, about a year. About a year. Okay. Oh boy, I'm time. You know, it's in COVID. Everything seems like it's a year. Okay, right. Everything seems like it takes That's like right. every right. week seems like a year. Okay. <laughs> So you've been on for a year and, and in that time, you guys, it seems pretty substantial growth. What's been the bigger challenge or the bigger holdback and seeing that come to fruition specifically in the context of open banking? Yeah, I mean, I guess the, uh, I mentioned the adoption 
we're expanding into new countries and new verticals as well. So we're kind of uncovering new use cases. And then we're also expanding into, into new countries uh, initially here, as you mentioned, uh, the U.S. And um, it's, uh, I guess, depending on which market you're in, there are different challenges from, from a regulatory perspective, for sure. I would say our largest challenge, though, has been finding terrific people to join the company. It's so competitive. With COVID, everyone has started digitizing. So we've doubled the size of our company this year and will we'll double again. Uh, in 2021, but it's finding good, smart people who believe in the mission of open banking and have them have them join. We have some terrific people that have joined over the last year, and so we're really set up well for this year. But uh, boy, it's hard to come across them because the, there's so much demand for for good talent. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, that is the universally number one with a bullet. The the number one biggest challenge everybody references on this podcast is finding people. In fact, so much so maybe I should stop asking it. Every now and then I get something different. It's kind of interesting. So the last question is what excites you the most about what it is you guys are working on and keeps you getting up every morning to fight the good fight? You know, I think it's like I mentioned before, when we uncover a new use case where we can help a client think about a problem in a way that they've never thought about it before that really gets us uh, jazzed up. So there's this this element of passion that I think exists in everyone at Flinks where it really excites us when we can help uh, customers create new things to better serve their clients. And and uh, specifically, you know, in Canada, we've expanded into the, the wealth vertical and we're now helping brokerages, insurance companies, anyone who's looking at uh, investment data now, which is kind of a maybe secondary to where the industry started, which was traditionally in kind of personal financial checking and savings and, and lending data. So that for us is really exciting when we can think about doing things in a new way and, uh, and then implement that and, and see the results. Secondary to other people, not to me. Anyway. <laughs> So, Clayton, uh, thanks a <laughs> lot. Right. Very much appreciate your time. And uh, this wraps up the series on open banking. I hope you guys found this informative and are better informed about the entire concept. But uh, like I keep saying, I, I dedicated five episodes to this because this is really important. And there's a kind of a kind of a watershed moment in this around the world in a lot of ways. So uh, it's, I sincerely hope everybody appreciate this. So, Clayton, thank you very much for your insight. Yeah. Jason, no, thank you. I think it, you're right. It is really important that we uh, we cover open banking in a thoughtful way. And thanks for all the work you do around uh, kind of bringing these ideas to the market. It's really, really, um, I think, beneficial to, to all your listeners. So thanks for having me on again. And uh, maybe I'll come on and, and, and be a third guest one day too. I don't know. Are you going to exit this company and do another one? <laughs> <laughs> We'll see. You'd be the first three exiters. But anyway, I got to two exiters. Anyway, I got to go. Uh, oh, sorry. We're going to cut off that. Yeah. I gotta go. well, um, well, thank you very much. Take care. So that was my interview with Clayton Fike about open banking. I hope you enjoyed that. And I hope you enjoyed the five-part series and better understand and appreciate just how big and important an issue this is. As always, if you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever's at your podcast. And until next time, take care. This podcast was brought to you by Woodgate Financial, an award-winning financial planning firm catering to high net worth individuals and their families. To learn more, go to woodgate.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, or find more episodes at jasonperera.ca.